you would please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 3. If you'd like, you could also turn into your bulletin insert. It has the verses 1 through 12 of chapter 3 we'll be looking at this morning and a little outline there for you to follow along. The context for James 3, we've been a little removed from the last time that I I preached in James chapter 2. In fact, the last time I preached in James 2, I was in Indonesia speaking to people and much like you, they had a need to understand what does James have to say to the church today. The message is the same around the globe and for all the ages. The truth of James is that we have been born again by the work of God through Jesus Christ. James 1.18, he sets the, the, the foundation of our salvation is that God, by His own will, has born us again and given us new life. And the rest of James is then tracking through what does genuine faith grow up into? Yeah, when you're born physically, you don't stay a child. You grow and mature over time. And so too we spiritually, when God gives us faith to trust in Him, and when we're born again, we're going to change and grow over time. And so the fruit of that genuine faith is tested, is examined. We see that as the evidence of faith. And most recently in chapter 2 of James, we covered four examples of the way that our profession of faith should line up with our works. How do faith and works go together. It's the flash of lightning and then the thunder that follows. It's just as certain that when God gives you faith to believe on Him, works will then follow. Now, they don't happen immediately, and like any growth, people grow at different rates and at different times in our lives. We, we grow faster or slower. So, this test that James gives us in these various areas of fruit and growth are not meant for you to hold up against somebody else and say, I don't think they're really a Christian, or they're not growing like they should, or these are for examining ourselves, for, for testing ourselves. And so when James gave us the examples of faith and works together, he mentioned Abraham, and Abraham's initial faith was to believe the promise of God and to leave Ur of the Chaldees and, and to walk out, but it wasn't until 35 years later that he was put to the ultimate test where he was called to sacrifice his own son, Isaac. And he realized, God realized in that moment, that his, he was genuine in his faith. Now, God says that about his faith, not because he wondered, but so that we would know, so we would understand. We looked at Rahab and the spies. And when the spies came to Rahab and sought shelter because the soldiers were after them, Rahab had already believed in the God of Israel. But she demonstrated by her taking those spies in, hiding them, and sending them out another way, that her faith was active. It was genuine by her works. Well, following these biblical examples, James 3 now gets personal to each one of us. Uh, Of course, I haven't been asked to sacrifice my son. I don't think you have either. Uh, Probably not too many spies knocking on your door asking, hey, can you hide us, right? Those are kind of unique examples. But in James 3, he gives us all a test that covers us 100%. At least if you have a tongue, this test is for you. Follow along as I read 
James 3, the, the tamed tongue is a clear example of true religion and an evidence of genuine faith. This is God's holy and inspired word, James 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to also bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father... And with it we curse people made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can salt pond yield fresh water. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that it is truth and that you in fact sanctify us by the truth. We thank you that as we come to your word, it acts like a mirror, that we can look into it and see what we need to change, how we need to arrange our thinking to be your thoughts and our action to be the actions you require of us. Make us to be not forgetful hearers, but to be genuine doers of the word. We need you to accomplish this. The times that we've tried this in our own strength, we've failed. We need you desperately for both the eyes to see these spiritual truths that are genuinely spiritually discerned and for then the strength and the power to actually live them out. Lord, we are so dependent, but we act as if we are independent. Humble us, Lord, to call out to you this morning to find your help your help with your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. James, the author of this book, grew up with Jesus, who was the master storyteller and illustrator. Remember how he uses parables, these earthly stories, to communicate heavenly meanings? Jesus uses the common, everyday things of life in order to communicate to us important, significant spiritual truths. His brother James, I think, picked up on it a little bit, and he employs it to its fullness here in James 3. There's nothing like a vivid illustration to get your attention to help drive home a point. When James uses bits and rudders and fire and water and fruit, they stuck with their original audience because they understood those everyday things of life. Now, as modern readers, sometimes there's a little distance between what exactly 
were the rudders like and the bits like on horses and ships, but we still have a modern-day context for what those things look like. I went last summer on a trek up a mountain with a mule train with horses and mules following in line. Hundreds of pounds carried up extreme elevation along trails that were steep, and I got to see the power of those horses and those mules be controlled by these tiny bits in their mouths. I saw as one of the reins got hooked by a tree branch and yanked that bit into the corner of a mule's mouth so that it swung off the trail and every other mule went off with it. It's amazing the power of that little bit to have a huge animal, a powerful animal under control. I think even fire, as I've seen throughout the week in the news, all the different fires that you can see having an illustration of the power of the tongue in the power of fire. I think James, when he would report, you you know how a whole forest is set afire by a small spark. But we could see that happen before our eyes. He would hear reports about it. He could see the devastation afterwards. But we got drones and helicopters flying in the air right now. So you can see with your eyes in live motion how powerful a fire can get. I saw recently a man that was trying to do a controlled burn on a piece of property he owned. That burn got out of control, went on to his neighbor's yard, and actually got to the point where it consumed his brand-new truck, equipment worth tens of thousands of dollars. That fire illustrates the power of the tongue. When we see common everyday things, and they communicate to us spiritual truths, those truths tend to hit home harder. I was reading recently about the story of the Bismarck. It was a German battleship in World War II, powerful, strong. It was like unsinkable, they thought, until just the right torpedo hit just the right spot in the rudder of that ship, and all it could do was go in a circle till they got it unjammed, and then it went in a zigzag pattern, and it was a sitting duck and it was destroyed. The power of that relatively small rudder to affect the outcome of this entire giant ship. With these vivid and relatable illustrations, James gets our attention, and with that important test, he has an important test for us. It's a test of taming our tongues. We, We relate it to ourselves. And we see that the tongue tests teachers. The power of the tongue can be used for good and bad. We'll see the dilemma that comes with the double-tongued nature of our tongues. And all of this is founded on a premise, a premise that Scripture teaches that since our tongues are tied to our hearts, it's mysterious. I can't see it. You can't visualize it. It doesn't come up on an MRI, but the Bible teaches it. Jesus tells us that our hearts are so connected to our tongues that God's grace is essential for us to have transformed talk. Your talk, your speech, the way you use your tongue will never be transformed until God's grace does a work in your heart. And he illustrates that clearly throughout this passage. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. This is the tongue test for teachers. 
Not a tongue twister. I was going to try to pull one of those off, but I thought, no, that's too tough of a test for a teacher to try to, yeah. Not many of you should be teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. We all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. I want to talk about what that perfect man phrase means, but let's talk about teachers first. What is understood to be a teacher by James? In his context, who were the teachers? Uh, They were those that passed on sacred tradition. They were the ones who taught almost exclusively with oral tradition. It was not going through textbooks so much as walking with and doing life together with somebody who could speak to us, memorizing great uh, lengths of Scripture. In the early church, it was roughly equivalent, a teacher was equivalent to a, a Jewish rabbi, one who would instruct in the Torah. It was spoken of teaching as a gift, that some were gifted with the gift of teaching in 1 Corinthians 12. In Ephesians 4, we even see that there is an office of pastor-teacher. Elders are called to be teachers. And he encourages Paul in those passages and in 1 Corinthians 11 that it's not just about having head knowledge and the ability to communicate content. That's what teachers do on one level, but it's also about their character. It's also about their conduct. It's about morality as well. And so we see that there are qualifications for teachers and that there are callings for teachers. Why is the subject of teachers coming up for James? Uh, Douglas Moo in his commentary adds, the probable logic to this argument is that teachers are more susceptible to judgment than others because they regularly engage in an activity which is hardest to keep from sin, one's speech. If you're going to test one area about where we have a general weakness across the whole population, particularly with with teachers is that with many words comes an opportunity for sin. It's not just the volume of words that they use. That does open them up to getting it wrong and not being correct. This is in line with what Jesus warns in Luke twelve forty eight. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And he said to him, from to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. If you're entrusted with the care and teaching of other people, there's going to be a greater, stricter judgment for you. With much power comes great responsibility. Now, I used to think that that was Uncle Ben only to Spider-Man, when Peter Parker, when he found out that he had this power. And then I look it up at Wikipedia, and I find there's maybe a greater context to this saying. But nevertheless, I still used it in the elevator a few months ago when one of the youngsters came on the, the elevator, and we have our robes on, and Pastor Tony are standing there, and Mom and Dad come in with the youngster. And I said, would you like to hit the button? Yeah. I said, with great power comes great responsibility. And so he pressed it, and the parents looked at me, and I looked at them, and they said... They're going to grow up thinking that Pastor Nathan came up with that saying. Are you going to correct that? It's like, well, no, let them believe that. That's kind of a cool saying. 
it's true. I, I'm kind of teaching that kid, and I kind of have a responsibility, right? I should be a little more truthful and accurate with my citations. Anyways, you look it up on Wikipedia. I think it predates uh, Uncle Ben, in fact. But this principle is rooted in what Jesus says to in this parable in Luke chapter 12, that if you're given much, you're going to be much required of you. In the early church, Paul had to speak to some who were teachers and give admonitions and corrections. He said in 2 Timothy 2.14, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for that will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among those are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. Warning. This is an extreme problem. There is strict judgment for those who would bring false teaching. I came across someone who said, that they fervently believe that the most dangerous thing in the world is the tongue. And I think that the church is more harmed by termites within than by woodpeckers on the outside. False teachers. Corruption of teaching and sound doctrine by those who would pervert the truth. Now, if we don't stumble in what we say, James says, You're a perfect man, able to bridle your whole body. Is he talking about moral perfection? I don't think so, because in the context of the New Testament, we have this term perfection. It's having an end in view of maturity, of getting more complete and completeness. And so, with this terminology, James is talking about this progressive sanctification, becoming more holy, more like Jesus. Jesus is the perfect man, and we are moving towards His image. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We should be growing in our speech to sound more like Jesus, and we can't do it on our own. You see, that's where grace comes in. It's by the Spirit. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Without the Spirit working this into us, getting rid of the corrupt speech and, and teaching us and growing us in the righteous speech, we can't do it on our own. We need grace. We need God's work to engage in our own strength as well. So this transformation has to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. So what does this look like for teachers? Yes, this is geared towards those who make it their profession to be a teacher. In the church, it's, it's to pastors, it's to elders, it's to Sunday school teachers, it's to Bible study leaders. We have to pass the test of the tongue. And not to be blind to some of the temptations that we have. There's itching ears out there, and our temptations as teachers is maybe to compromise the truth a little bit so that we say things that people want to hear instead of speaking to what they need to hear. Be careful, teachers. We're going to be judged with a stricter judgment. 
As people pleasers, we, we want to be liked. We want to be thought well of. So we'll say things that people want to hear instead of the things that God has declared and we're called to say. Yes, to teachers and teachers in the church, but I think this more generally applies to anyone who uses their tongue to instruct others. Parenting, grandparenting. How about to advise others? Somebody has a question. Somebody looks to you for advice. It's, it's like the sticker I have on the back of my laptop. It says, every Christian is a counselor. We teach, we advise, we counsel with whatever we have. And if we are counseling and teaching according to God's Word, then that's what we're going to be judged by, the content of our teaching. It's for parents, it's for friends, it's for mentors. We all use our tongues to express our opinions, our thoughts, our ideas. The only question is, are those opinions, thoughts, and ideas God's? The world's? We made it up on our own? I want my teaching to be in line with what the Word of God says. And so, the content matters. The character of the teacher matters. The consistency of that teacher matters. We need to be humble. We should be wise in the Word. At the end, we're called to be faithful, to be growing and maturing. Okay, what about the power of the tongue? Verses 3 through 8, we see these demonstrations of powerful horses and vessels, ships, and fire And we see that they can be used for good in powerful ways, for bad in powerful ways. Verse 3, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. A bit isn't just for stopping an animal. A bit is for guiding and directing. Uh, uh, Sometimes we think, well, if I just keep my mouth shut, I won't get into any trouble. The problem is, below, is the heart remains unchanged. The mouth is only revealing what's in the heart, and so just keeping a lid on it doesn't address what's already in here. The next example, then, is the ships. Look at the ships. Though they are so large, they're driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Think of all the good that horses and ships and even fire can accomplish when it's used in a proper manner, when it's guided. You see, those vessels and those animals and, and that fire doesn't act all on its own. It has to be guided. It has to be directed. And really, whether it's good or bad comes from how it's being directed. The pilot, the rider, the source is important. And for us, it's the heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so, if our hearts are right, then the mouth should reflect that. Someone said, horses and ships are large things of great power that nevertheless are controlled by human will and by means of very small items. The controlling verb here is the same to guide or direct or steer as it is with the horse. The horse example is interesting because the literal mouth is the means of control. The ship's interesting because it harnesses great powers of outside of itself, strong winds that are then directed by means of a small rudder. 
Have you seen how just a few words to a sad, dejected, pouty little kid, if you say just a few good words, I'm here for you. I'll help you. Change the demeanor. Change the course of that child's life. It can do such powerful good things when they receive encouragement, when they hear reinforcement, when they, you're a channel of God's grace to that child. But you've seen how terrible it is, how devastating it is to be a young person when, when words that are fire come out of your mouth. That's the illustration of, of what goes wrong, what goes bad. And the use of fire has been, we could glean from other places in Scripture and in our human experience, that fire can be used well and under control. But here James uses it almost exclusively for how bad it can get, how powerfully bad it can get. The end of verse 5, how great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is itself set on fire by hell. I mean, this is such a negative description. Every beast of the and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Just such an utter devastation and destruction that fire can unleash should be a huge warning to us concerning the use of our tongue. The entire forest representing the entire course of our life. The evil of a world of unrighteousness, and the power of hell itself, a relentless evil that simply won't rest, filled with deadly poison that can kill and destroy. It's so powerful, and that impact can cause such harm. And the greatest lie ever told about the tongue is, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Not true. The devastation that I've seen in the lives of people who have had words of hatred, words of, of mocking, words that, that, that call children stupid, it has such a powerful, devastating effect. God's grace can restore. God's grace can redeem that. God's grace can get a hold of the heart that is set on fire. But, boy, we must be careful. Take care good, tremendous good, evil, devastating evil. How do we do this? How do we handle it? Well, in Romans 6, Paul says, don't present your members to sin. Think of your member as parts of your body. Think of your tongue as that member that here James is addressing. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. You've been redeemed. You've been saved. You're a new creature. Give what you have now. It belongs to Him already, but surrender it to God so that your tongue is used for good and and not evil. 
Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This process can happen as we yield to Christ, to the power of the Spirit. The Galatians 5 passage that Paul says to walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They're opposed to each other. They keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Our tongues can be led by the flesh into sin, can be led by the Spirit into righteousness. Lord, keep a watch over my tongue. And you know what? I think you could modernize it today. James would say, keep a watch on your thumbs when you text, when you post comments, when you post social media. Watch my thumbs as much as you watch my tongue, Lord, because I can yield that for righteousness, and I could send the most encouraging message to somebody that will make their weak. Or I could say the most sarcastic, hurtful, damaging thing that will impact and stay on the interwebs forever. When we have an untamed tongue, it can include gossiping, putting others down, bragging, manipulating, false teaching, exaggerating, complaining, flattering, lying. The Scriptures are replete with those negative examples. But when you yield your tongue to the Spirit, wow, you can evidence love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and meekness, self-control. If your tongue is yielded to the Spirit, those fruits can be evident and encouraging to all. It's not mentioned explicit here, but our tongue that speaks audibly for others to hear speaks pretty fast, pretty harsh, pretty powerful. But you know we speak to ourselves way faster, way more throughout the day and the things that you say to yourself can be just as destructive or just as powerfully helpful. Consider the talk that you're speaking to yourself and yield those thoughts and those meditations to the Spirit. Quit listening to the world. Quit listening to your flesh and being influenced in that way. Proverbs got it in Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all vigilance for flum it flow the springs of life. Verse 9, with our tongue, with our mouth, we bless the Lord and Father, with it we also curse people made in the likeness of God. How can this be? This same mouth that we bless God with, we end up cursing people created in the likeness of God. That shouldn't be. You kiss your mama with that mouth? You've heard that said, right? That's, this is James' way of saying, your, your mouth was not made for that. It was made for righteousness. Uh, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brother. Th- these things should not be so. Does a spring for, pour forth the same opening fresh water and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? A grapevine produce figs? The answer is no, but it just doesn't happen. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. All right, your heart is that spring of life, and stuff is coming out of it. Sometimes it's pretty salty. Sometimes it's pretty sweet. The dilemma is we're so inconsistent. My dilemma is that that sometimes I can say the right thing, 
And it could be a blessing and encouragement. And other times, I could say the wrong thing. You know, James is informed again by his brother Jesus. Jesus makes this very point in Luke 6.43. No good tree bears bad fruit. No, again, does a bad tree bear good fruit? Each tree is known by its fruit. The good person out of the good in their heart brings forth the treasure. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So fill your heart with garbage. What's going to come out of your mouth? Fill your heart with the truth of God's Word and what's going to come out of our heart. You know, our hearts are deceitful and wicked. Jeremiah warns us of that. We know that. We've experienced that. And we need a heart change, that we have a heart of stone when we come into this world, and it needs to be extracted, and a heart of flesh needs to be put in its place that beats for God and lives for Him, but that heart's going to grow in the direction that we yield our members to. This is a battle. This dilemma isn't solved by James here. We're still left in the middle of the conflict of salt water and fresh water, of good and bad coming out of our mouth, blessing and cursing. What do we do? This battle is what Paul, this struggle is what Paul talks about in Romans 7. I'm convinced that Romans 7 is Paul's experience as a believer wrestling against his sinful flesh, his tendencies. And so if you imagine now Romans 7 and the struggle he describes, I pulled out uh, the doing words and I put in the tongue, the saying, and the speaking. And so if I were to adapt his words this way, Romans 7.15 would say, I don't understand my own tongue, for I don't say what I want, but I say the very thing I hate. Now, if I say what I don't want to say, I agree that the law is good. Now, so now it's no longer I who say it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. I have the desire to speak what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. I don't say the good I want, but the evil I don't want is what I keep on speaking. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my tongue another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my tongue. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver my tongue from this body of death? That's the dilemma. Do you experience that? Are you wrestling with that same fight? And who will rescue us? Who's our deliverer? Who's going to save us from ourselves? It's Jesus Christ, the righteous. The good news is that through Him, through faith in Him, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your tongue has been set free from the law of sin and death. And now you can glorify God with that tongue. Look, the test of our tongues, it's for everyone. Nobody escapes this test. The consequences for good or bad, they're great, powerful. Or devastating. But in the end, the dilemma is real. We can't completely control our tongues, but God can and does help us to grow and to improve into maturity and perfection. Dan Doriani has said, we're not totally new, but we're genuinely new. By God's grace, let us use our tongues to bless the Lord, to bless mankind whom He made in His image. Yeah, consistency is the problem for me. I'm sure it is for you. James leaves us in this tension. 
He doesn't resolve the problem for us here, but how about this? A little glimpse into the next chapter, into chapter 4. Here's what he says in verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, but therefore to God. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Since our tongues are tied to our hearts, God's grace is necessary to transform our talk. There's hope. There's hope for gospel transformation, and it's found in grace. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand. Submit your tongue to Him, and your mind and your tongue will start to follow and speak of His grace. Let's pray together. Lord, we've tried on our own to bite our tongue. We've tried to put a lid over our mouths. We've tried to by our willpower, just do better, try harder, and we failed. And so, Lord, help us not to go down that failing path again, and instead today surrender our hearts to You, submit our lives before You, that we would yield our members to Your Spirit, that we would fill our hearts with the truth and the love and the grace and the kindness of the gospel so that it would flow out to everyone around us. Lord, this transformation is what you do. We trust you in it. Be glorified in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.